back in Deuteronomy 6. A guy named Moses wrote this, inspired by God, where God said, look, here's the biggest thing I need your people, my people, to do. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. As a young boy, Jesus would have prayed this prayer over and over and over, multiple times a day. Jesus would have grown up as his earthly father, Joseph, taught him this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. Shema just means here. It's the first word of that. Shema Israel. And so Jesus, this deeply Jewish man, said, here's the greatest command. Let's go all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, where first the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and then the first action step is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And so if Jesus was Jewish, quoting um, a Jewish man, Moses, who was instructing the Jewish people, we have to ask the question, okay, I need to know what heart means in a Jewish sense, not in an American sense. Because I hear heart, and we now know, that is the physiological organ that pumps blood, and sometimes we use it to like describe our emotions or our feelings, or to bless it, bless your heart. But in a Jewish sense, that is actually not the complete story. So Jews would have known, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is all-encompassing. And I could go on and on about what the Jews thought, but there is an organization um, that makes videos that describes things like this. And so we're going to watch a video really quick uh, called The Bible Project, and they're describing what the Jews would have thought when they heard the word heart or lev. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connection. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotion. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life. And there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it,
It's like what Nathan said to David, whatever is in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known Proverbs. Guard your heart, because from it flows your whole life. Now, the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally corrupt. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick. Who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why, in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So to a Jewish mind, which was who Jesus was surrounded by when he said this, and who Moses was surrounded by when he uttered those words. To a Jewish mind, your heart was the center of your emotions, your thoughts, your choices, and your body. And so if we want to be wholehearted, then what we're looking at is how do we renew our heart? How do we renew our heart for the sake of following Jesus? How do we, what's it look like to give our whole heart? How do we live wholehearted towards who Jesus is? And uh, as I was sitting in the Airbnb, um, just praying and uh, thinking about this, I got this like almost phrase um, or this thought, and I saw a lot of like your faces as I was thinking this, but I thought this, um, imagine at the end of 2022, what your life would be like if you knew, loved, and experienced Jesus more than you ever have. Imagine at the end of 2022 what your life would be like if you knew, loved, and experienced Jesus more than you ever have. And I started thinking about that and seriously seeing a lot of your faces like, oh man, if so-and-so like, did the, like if they experienced God so much more, that would be so much fun to see how he or she started to grow over the next year. And then I had this thought, and it didn't feel that convicting, but I felt like the Lord said, and what about you? To me. And I was like, oh, I need this. Like, and one of my, like, jobs, I guess, is to help everyone experience more of Jesus, but, man, I can't do that well if that's not my story. And so then I started to think about myself, and I started to get excited because I know Jesus. I love him, and I've experienced a lot of him, but what if there's more? Like, what if there's more for me? And I started thinking about what my life might be like at the end of this year if I knew, loved, and experienced Jesus more than I ever have. And I started to get really excited. And so I want to ask that question, and let's just dream for a little bit. We have plenty of time to dream. This is going to be for the next seven months. But I want you to dream a little bit around this question. So close your eyes. I'm just going to read that over you, and I want you to think about it. Whether you know, love, and experience him now or you don't, close your eyes, and I want you to imagine what your life would be like at the end of this year if you knew Jesus more than you ever have known him. 
if you loved Jesus more than you've ever loved him, and if you experienced more of who he was than you ever have before. Just imagine for like 15 seconds, what is life like if that's true at the end of this year? And we are going to spend the rest of this year pursuing that reality. It's going to look like not just one long sermon series or one long initiative, but it's going to be broken into pieces. How do we, as wholehearted people, with our whole self, pursue Jesus? That means that there are aspects of our minds and emotions and body that we need to align with who Jesus is. And so um, I started thinking and doing a little bit of research on like what would the whole heart and being wholehearted towards Jesus look like. And um, I got seven things. So here's the next seven things. About once a month, we're going to have like a shorter message series that's going to invade our house groups and almost everything that we do. Um, But seven pieces that go into uh, what it looks like to be wholehearted. And this week, I'm going to barely kick it off, but Michelle's starting most of it next week, is we're going to start with family. And when we say family here, we mean both nuclear and non-nuclear. How do we start to form friends that feel like family? How do we get a community around us that um, encourages us towards this? Because here is what is true, is that if you and I try to do this on our own, I'm wholehearted for Jesus. If you're good, you'll make it six weeks. If you're incredibly strong, you'll make it 12. There is no white-knuckling following Jesus without other people around you that are encouraging you to do this. If you look at the people around you, that's a good indicator of where your spiritual trajectory is. And so we're going to answer two really basic questions. Why is it important to make good friends? And how do we do it? And we're borrowing from the best of biblical and sociological advice. But we're going to start here. We're doing a sermon series later on Jesus, which I know they're all about him. But like, we're not starting with Jesus. We're starting with this because this lays the base for how we actually can pursue more of Jesus wholeheartedly is with doing it with other people around us. So family, number two is practice. Loving Jesus should change our rhythms. What are the rhythms? What are the practices of Jesus that we want to start to develop? We're going to talk about things like celebration, which is a practice of Jesus. Jesus was a partier. He had a good time. Following Jesus is fun. I want to really instill that in our church. It's not just a somber experience. Jesus celebrated. Uh, Jesus forgave. Jesus encouraged us to repent. And so what are the practices that Jesus did and how do we start to orient our rhythms around Jesus so that we can experience and love him more? Um, In July, that's going to be June, in July, we're going to talk about health in a pretty holistic sense. Um, Jesus loves your body. Jesus loves your mind. Jesus loves what you put your hand to day in and day out. And so how do we turn around and love Jesus with our physical body? We're going to talk about physical health. How do we love Jesus with the thing that fills our time during the day? That could be a profession. That could be a stay-at-home parent. That could be a student. But the first institution that God put in front of us was not marriage. It was work. And so how do we love God with um, engaging in the things that he's given us to do? How do we love God professionally? And then um, also breaking down a little bit of the stigma that seems to arisen in the last few years around mental health. 
How do we love God with our minds? And like, how do we engage in mental health and uh, do it in a biblical way? But how do we like actually acknowledge that that's a thing? And so we're looking at whole body, professionally, relationally, we're looking at physically, and we're looking at mentally. Um, In August, it's going to be super fun and a little bit nervous. We're going to talk about worldview. How do we create a worldview that reflects Jesus? Um, Because here is also what's true. All of us have a worldview. And all of us are being influenced to form our view of the world through something. We're just going to assert maybe that should be through um, Jesus' inspiration and like biblical authority. And uh, social media and your political persuasion can do good things, but we're going to say maybe Jesus is above that. How do we? Someone's forming your worldview. We just want to say, I want mine to be formed through what Jesus says. And so I'm not exactly sure what we're talking about in August because that one's getting a lot of prayer and thought. But I do know that I want to engage my worldview through um, what Jesus says and the things that Jesus values, um, not what I'm just reading on Instagram. In September, we're going to talk about Jesus, uh, like literally the man. We're going to talk about Jesus all the time. Get all, yeah, I, I get it. We're all here for him, I know. We're here for Jesus, but specifically, what was his biography? Like, who was he? he was, was he a carpenter? What are some of the things he said? He was a Jewish man, so how do we start to unpack some of the things that he said? I promise you will learn something in that series because so much of what Jesus said is not based in a 21st century Western mind, but it's based in a first century agrarian culture that has a Jewish context behind it. And so how do we get to know Jesus? Simply for this fact, when we get to know him, you will fall in love with him. He is amazing. He is incredible. And I want to fall deeper in love with him by studying and understanding who he was because that's what makes him even more amazing is the more that you dig into who Jesus was, the more we just want to give our life to him. In October, we're talking about his bride, the church. How do we engage with the church? And how do we engage with an institution that has hurt some of us? How do we engage with an institution that's been really difficult for some of us? And how do we engage still while acknowledging that there's been mistakes, using Jesus as our model because Jesus loves, engages, and has forgiven you, also a flawed person. We're gonna talk mostly about the global church. I wanna talk a little bit about like the local expression, which for us would be city church. Um, But more than that, we are a part, again, of not just a citywide team, we're a part of a global movement that started 2,000 years ago, and it's not stopping. How do we engage with that? Yeah, that was probably worth an amen. Let me try that one again. Remember, we're talking back now. Uh, We had like a year and a half of being quiet. Um, We're going to engage with the global church because there was a movement that started 2,000 years ago, and it's not stopping. Come on. (laughs) Lastly, we're going to talk about multiply. Healthy Christians multiply. And we want to end with this because we don't want to just multiply anything, but we want to multiply wholehearted disciples. What does discipleship look like? This really vague term that's thrown around a lot in the church. We're going to talk about discipleship, evangelism, and probably the primary way we can multiply and affect the world is through prayer. And so through these seven things, we're trying to be, hopefully at the end of this year, you can look back and say, man, I think I'm more wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus in a whole sense than just like I know more Bible facts or I pray more, which is good. All of those things are great, but how do we 
put it into a holistic sense and how do we give our whole heart to following Jesus, we've just leaned into this. And this is what Christians or thought leaders would say is spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. It's this idea that Jesus started of how do we form our spirits? How do we start to look more like him? A guy named Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament and he was so engaged in spiritual formation. If you read early church history, the catechisms, the, the ways that they were forming new believers was all about spiritual formation. And then the monks did a great job. And spiritual formation has gone dormant for quite some time in the modern church. And two guys a few years ago started to pick up talking about it more. I mean, more than just these two, but these are two thought leaders on spiritual formation. They're in the same church plant, which is incredible to me. It's a guy named uh, uh, Dallas Willard and Richard Foster. These two guys sitting in the same church saying, what if we uh, started doing spiritual formation? How do we form the whole spirit instead of just engaging in an institution? Richard Foster said this about evangelicals. He said that we are great, great at getting people over the border of faith, but not great at getting them into the territory of following Jesus. Dallas Willard said that if spiritual formation doesn't make it into the local church, it will become a fad and die out. That's where we're at right now. Spiritual formation, which is a good thing, has become a little bit of a fad. A lot of thought leaders are talking about it, and we should. We need thought leaders helping us engage with it. But Dallas Willard, I believe, is right, because he usually is. He said, if this thing doesn't make it into the local expression of the church, then it is just a fad that books are written about and conferences are had. But if it doesn't engage, if it doesn't involve the God's people in cities and in the country, then how do we actually make this thing sustain? Um, so when we leave today, you're going to get a really cool journal uh, with a really cool graphic that Sheridan designed. So props to her. Tell her that it looks great because it is amazing. Um, but you're going to get this journal when you walk out. And uh, here's the biggest challenge. You have to keep it for the next seven months. And uh, every page is just room for you can draw, you can take notes on. There's one big question at the end of each one of these topics but we're going to try to record a little bit of how God has moved and how we have dreamed with God over the next seven months, trying to pursue being wholehearted towards him. So I want to talk very briefly about family because we're starting that one right now. In Luke 6, this is a pivotal moment in Jesus's ministry. He's choosing the guys that he's going to do life with. It says in Luke 6, 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, we read this, and we're like, oh man, that's just a list of a bunch of names. But the Jewish mind would have read this and be like, that's crazy. That's crazy. You use the worst earthly wisdom to bring together your team. In sports terms, this is like poor general management. So insert your current team that you hate the most right now. This is what Jesus is doing. Poor general management. Bad earthly wisdom. You chose two sets of brothers to be on your team. That's a bad idea. Brothers don't get along. You want to change the world through unity? Don't get brothers. And then he chooses these other two guys. And again, these are just names to us. But he chooses a guy named um, Simon, who is called a zealot. And zealots at the time, they were, um, everyone, most everyone was opposed to the fact that Israel was being oppressed by Rome. Zealots were incredibly opposed to that. Zealots were on far end of the political spectrum, and they said, look, we need to revolt against Rome right now. 
right now. So you say the time, I'll be there. And zealots, they were known to carry a dagger like in their cloak, you know, just in case the revolt started and they couldn't stab anyone immediately. I mean, that's the kind of a person a zealot would have been. I, I don't want to miss out. If I don't have my sword with me, that's okay. I still got a dagger. I'm ready to go at any moment because we are going to throw off Rome. And on the other end of the spectrum of the political scheme would have been this guy named Matthew, who was a tax collector. And he lived by the motto, if you can't beat him, join him. So he just joined Rome and said, look, yeah, they're probably not great, but man, I can make a lot of money if I hitch my wagon to that sword. And so Matthew made a lot of money exploiting his people and supporting the Roman government. These two men were opposites. These two men were at extreme sides of how they viewed the world. This is um, the Will Smith and Chris Rock of the Oscars. It's even worse. This is of the space billionaire race. This is getting Elon and Bezos in the same room. This is uh, Taylor Swift and any of her ex-boyfriends. Any of them. This is uh, in Fast and Furious World, and I know we all get this. This is The Rock and Vin Diesel. R.I.P. These guys would not have liked each other. And I want you to imagine the first meeting that they had. Matthew's like, wait, Jesus, he? He's here? That guy tried to stab me last week. And Simon's like, yeah, I did. Jesus, you're, you're going to have this guy? These are the people you want to stand next to you? That guy won't even stand next to his people. He stands next to Caesar. Can you imagine the awkwardness? Can you imagine the tension that these two guys, Jesus says, hey, um, this is extra biblical, but I imagine at some point Jesus said, we're going to do this together, we're going to change the world. No, we're not, not with him. And yet it says in Acts that these men, these people, turned the world upside down. And Simon and Matthew were two of them. If that's true, I have to believe that we are capable of something similar. That people wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And if we can form family, if we can form friendships better than they can, they were more opposite than any two people in this room. If they can do it, then I think we can do it too. What does it look like to form community, to form friendships, to see the need for friendships, good friendships that push us towards Jesus? This idea of family, this is in your notes, it's birthed in trust and it's forged through experience. Family is birthed in trust. So there has to be trust, which takes time, but it is forged through experience. Christine Pohl, she uh, is an author and thought leader on community. She said good communities and life-giving congregations emerge at the intersection of divine grace and steady human effort. So she said two things need to be true if a community is going to be healthy. One, God needs to be faithful. So let's just like, based on history, assume that's going to be true. For the beginning of time, God's been faithful. We'll assume that divine grace is going to be there. And then she says the other thing is steady human effort. What is the human effort that we need to put into this in order to form good friendships? Family is birthed in trust and forged through experience. Uh, I want to finish by just making sure we know that this is true. I want to give it a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, following Jesus or living wholehearted towards him will cost you something. Living wholehearted will cost you something. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had and bought that field. And Jesus leaves out part of the story, I imagine. The, the part where everyone comes to this man and says, You're crazy. What do you mean you're going all in for this field? What if you, 
hear me out. What if you bought half the field? What if you financed 80% of it? What if you just sold half of your stuff and you bought some of the field? What if you just bought pieces of it over time? See, living wholehearted will often invoke thoughts or questions from half-hearted people. Being wholehearted will cost you something. So before we say, man, I'm all in, I just want us to know it is going to cost us something because we will be tempted to rationalize. We'll be tempted to rationalize. And no one is a better rationalizer in my own heart than me. I know exactly what I want. And no one is a better rationalizer in your own heart than you. And going wholehearted for Jesus means that there's going to be voices and thoughts that come in that say, well, you could probably still hold this to the side, or you could probably not do that, or you could probably still withhold this part of your life. Living wholehearted will cost you something, and rationalization is the great enemy of becoming wholehearted. Rationalization is the great enemy of what it looks like for us to become wholehearted. But we do this because Jesus first did it. We live wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus because he first was wholeheartedly devoted to us. We live wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus because Jesus was first wholeheartedly devoted to us. We don't have to wonder if there's going to be some kind of reciprocation like, man, I'm going to go all in for him, but I hope he shows up. Like, he started it. He got the ball rolling. He was wholehearted towards you when he was on a cross. He was wholehearted towards you when he came out of the tomb. We don't have to wonder if Jesus is going to show up and meet us halfway. He's already been there. He's already done it. We choose to go all in for Jesus because he went all in for us first. And so there is a cost to this, but there is not much of a risk. We don't have to wonder if Jesus is going to meet us as we pursue him. Uh, There was a prophet that told a king of Israel, King Asa, he said, look, here's what you need to know. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. The Lord is with you if you are with him. And this is in the context of one man and one king, but as we look throughout scripture, that seems to be a true statement. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there's no wondering if we go all in for him, if he's going to meet us halfway. And so this morning, we're just going to make a little bit of a declaration going for the next seven months, but maybe it just starts right here, of Jesus, I I want you. I want you to have more of my heart. Or maybe you're not quite there. Maybe you're two once away. I want to want you. Um, This morning, I thought it would be good. Um, The front is always open, but let's utilize that. Sometimes we need to change our posture to change or represent a heart change that we're having. So if you want, um, as we start to worship, the front's open just to kneel and to change and to say, God, I'm in. Like, here's my physical declaration for something that's spiritually happening inside of me. Uh, There's going to be people, as always, to pray in the front and the back. Um, Don't come in with a burden and not get that thing prayed for. They want to pray for you. And finally, the Lord's table is always available for um, any of us that would say we are followers of Jesus. But this morning, we want to make a declaration. Jesus, I am all in for you. I know it's going to cost me something, but I want to give my whole heart to following you. Let's respond to Jesus.